0: HIV-AIDS, where are we now? A report back to the community. HIV-AIDS is important, uh, both for each individual um, who has to contend with it, uh, but on a global scale. So this is a uh, Richter scale of uh, natural bioweapons of mass destruction. These are the agents that are causing the most mortality on the globe And you can see there are uh, five uh, items here that are causing more than a million deaths annually on the globe, led by HIV and tobacco, uh, with malaria, chronic hepatitis, and tuberculosis up on the list. Uh, Tobacco and HIV, not only are uh, number one and two, but uh, they are both increasing, while many of the others are relatively stable, if you consider a million deaths or so. Uh, Okay. Um, this is the true bioterrorism on the globe. And uh, we should be putting resources into the true bioterror agents um, in proportion to um, the level of um, mortality that they're causing. The burden of HIV infection is extensive. There are over 25 million people who've died of AIDS in the past 20 years, and there are currently over 40 million people on the globe who are living with HIV infection. The current rates of infection and death, there are over 5 million new infections annually. That's the equivalent of 16,000 new infections every day, or almost one new infection every five seconds on the globe. Uh, The new infections uh, with treatment now are exceeding the rate of deaths, but we still, on the globe, uh, are experiencing 8,000 deaths every day, which is the equivalent of six World Trade Center buildings. So, uh, the AIDS Research Institute of the University of California, San Diego, is uh, the coordinating effort to um, bring together all of the um, HIV-AIDS activities on the campus. The mission of the AIDS Research Institute is to become a regional resource um, for HIV and AIDS research, uh, by coordinating and stimulating collaborative scientific research and exchange within the academic community, uh, by offering relevant education and training opportunities in many areas related to HIV infection, since uh, the epidemic is going to be around long after the people who are here are speaking to you, and we have to train new people to contend with it. And uh, by providing clinical resources and education to the San Diego community, and that um, component of the mission is uh, what we're uh, trying to do this evening. Um, In its March 2006 Best Graduate Schools edition, the U.S. News and World Report acknowledge the outstanding quality of a- UCSD-HIV-AIDS research programs. They ranked at sixth in the nation. I don't think they um, used the right uh, metrics to, uh, to rank us. Uh, but um, nevertheless, um, this is a, um, uh, recognized as an outstanding program. <clears throat> there are well over 100 uh, members on the faculty who are uh, part of the AIDS Research Institute representing over a dozen departments Um, but I just list here the clinical program projects at UCSD that underlie translational investigation translational investigation is the term used for um, bringing together uh, basic bench research with um, direct patient clinical investigation (coughs) we have the AIDS uh, clinical trials unit uh, here at San Diego led by Uh, Constance Benson, who will be talking to you this evening. She also uh, happens to be uh, the director of the national and actually international AIDS clinical trials network of the National Institutes of Health. Steve Spector uh, leads the pediatric uh, uh, AIDS clinical trials unit. Uh, Igor Grant and his colleagues lead, uh, really, the major uh, neuropsychiatric research program in HIV-AIDS, I think, uh, in the world, and um, a number of uh, components of that include the HNRC, which is co-located with the uh, antiviral research unit, uh, NeuroAIDS Tissue Network, and the Charter Program. Uh, Dr. Little, who you'll be hearing from, and and I uh, coordinate a program identifying um, newly infected patients and studying them, and you'll be hearing from her about that. Dr. Halbrick, who you'll be hearing from, leads the uh, statewide California Collaborative Treatment Group. Chris Matthews uh, leads the Owen Clinic uh, here in this uh, medical center, which uh, follows uh, close to 3,000 uh, souls with uh, HIV infection. Uh, David Looney uh, leads a similar uh, clinical program at the VA Medical Center, which follows over 600 souls. And um, Chris Matthews also leads an AIDS education and training center. So there are a lot of programs that involve numerous individuals um, here at UCSD for patient care, research, and training. The Antiviral Research Center um, is uh, directed by uh, Connie Benson. it started as a, a university-based uh, nonprofit clinical trials unit in '86, 20 years ago, um, and its uh, mission is to develop and provide the highest quality treatment and care for people living with HIV, uh, while conducting state-of-the-art research uh, in partnership with the community and providing educational programs on HIV and other chronic infections. And and you'll hear more about that. Uh, the AVRC. Uh, does clinical investigation and antiretroviral therapy uh, into the complications of HIV and the complications of the treatment of HIV. Uh, a major program in um, hepatitis co-infection um, has uh, been um, uh, further energized by the uh, arrival of, of Dr. Uh, Chip Scully and David Wiles. Uh, we study immune-based therapies uh, the primary HIV infection, as Dr. Little will tell you about. And Dr. Davy Smith uh, leads a uh, state and county funded healthcare program, the Early Intervention Program, which helps uh, coordinate newly identified patients get into care and into our clinical studies. Uh, there are various ways to support our programs. In your envelope, you have um, this sort of information. In addition to direct contributions, there are some um, painless uh, mechanisms to um, help provide resources to the AIDS Research Institute. Uh, Both uh, the Ralph's Card and a uh, web-based iGive program that has about 100 uh, organizations uh, of web purchasing like Amazon and so on A portion of the profits to each of the uh, purchases that people make anyway for these programs uh, can be diverted to the support, the AIDS Research Institute, and I encourage you to to, um, check into that. You can do that with the information on your cards or on our website, uh, the first uh, one, uh, ari.ucsd.edu. Or uh, we also encourage you to check the uh, AVRC website listed here and on your cards. So uh, with that introduction, uh, I'll um, I'll warn you what you're up against. We have um, really four outstanding uh, clinicians and investigators uh, to tell you um, about four different areas uh, that they are... um, especially expert in, um, and th- they are listed here, and I'll introduce each of them individually um, before they uh, give their presentations. So without further ado, let me introduce Richard Halbert. Uh Richard is, the, um, is, is a clinical investigator who's been involved in numerous important studies of antiretroviral drugs and um, is also the director of the California Collaborative Treatment Group. He will be telling you about Um, the uh, current approaches to the treatment of patients who have not yet started antiretroviral therapy.
1: Uh, Thanks for that kind introduction, uh, Doug. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here this evening and uh, leading off this session by telling you a little bit about uh, some data that was presented uh, at the World AIDS Conference in Toronto uh, dealing with therapies for people who have never been on prior antiretrovirals. I'd like to start, actually, by uh, telling you about the poster presentation that won the Organizer's Committee Award for the best poster in the meeting. And I have to admit that this actually was not my work. Um, And in fact, it wasn't work of many of the investigators at the conference. It was actually something that was posted outside across the street, Um, but I think is relevant uh, to uh, the climate of, uh, as Doug Richmond was pointing out, with. diversion of uh, money that should be going for research to other activities. So we would encourage him to uh, read up on some things here. So really in concordance with this meeting, a number of the uh, guidelines came out suggesting and updating really our Uh, recommendations for therapy for treatment-naive individuals. I should also point out that I've been, I need to watch the clock here, because I've been told that I would, at 15 minutes, they'll start throwing food at me here, so I have to be careful not to to go too uh, long here. So, um, the recommendations were really updated, uh, and they added more therapies uh, that are useful and available for uh, treatment-naive individuals. Um, Just focusing in on one of them, the DHHS guidelines compared lopinavir plus nucleosides with efavirenz plus nucleosides, and actually work that was uh, done through the AIDS clinical trial group was presented there that sheds light on uh, which of these uh, two therapies might be the best. But you could say, because we have so many therapies now for treatment-naive individuals, why do we need new therapies? do we need new options? Maybe we should just stick with what we've got and and move on. And hopefully some of what I'll try to tell you today gives you a rationale why we may in fact need uh, to still be working on therapy for treatment-naive individuals. In addition, there was a lot of information that was presented about uh, antiretroviral rollouts uh, to developing nations. This is just an example of some of the data that was uh, presented. Uh, For example, here, this uh, one project with a large number of people uh, where antiretrovirals were rolled out uh, and uh, showing that there's very good follow-up and very good uh, results of therapy. Interestingly enough, too, uh, if you treat people with HIV, they don't die. Um, which is good. So showing you here a a historical cohort of people that are followed that uh, before they had access to therapy. And what you're seeing here is the time uh, to death, really. And after two years, you can see that a large percentage of the people were actually dying. If you actually give them antiretroviral therapy, there's a huge benefit. And this is one of the most striking things that I saw at the meeting is we really need to be treating HIV everywhere people are infected. And so it's really gratifying that uh, uh, these new roll-out programs are showing the benefit of therapy in something that even our president couldn't argue with. So um, many of the investigators that you'll hear tonight also are involved internationally in a variety of different programs. That won't be what we're focusing on, but uh, clearly we're taking the lessons that we've learned here in the U.S. and the uh, skills and talents that we have, and we're uh, using those uh, across the seas, both in terms of treating patients but also in uh, increasing the knowledge for clinical investigation. So the, uh, one of the things I'd like to talk about are Uh, newer strategies for treatment-naive patients, and one strategy is using a regimen that has all nucleoside drugs, all drugs in one combination. And they might be desirable for a variety of different reasons. Um, Even though we have good therapies now, some of them are not good for women of childbearing potential because the fabrins in particular uh, can cause problems with... uh, a developing baby, so it shouldn't be used. In addition, people who have other diseases like psychiatric illness, tuberculosis, etc. might benefit from uh, newer therapies with combination of nucleosides alone. Well, we do have all nucleoside regimens, and more recently we've seen that they really haven't performed as well as regimens with efavirenz. So example of this study shown here where we compare a regimen with favrins plus two nucleosides to an all nucleoside regimen, there's more failures in the all nucleoside regimen. So this is one area where we could uh, need improvements in therapy. And in fact, what we did is tried another all-nucleoside regimen, this uh, time comparing these three particular nucleosides together compared to a standard of Favren's-based regimen. And what you really want to have happen, and this is showing you the viral load here from very high levels, up to a million copies, and you want it to go down with time, as is done here, and stay down. And you can see here, with this particular triple nucleoside regimen, it's not going down well. And and in fact, very early on here, people are are starting to have rebound of their viral load. So this, although we thought would be a very good nucleoside combination based on our knowledge of each of the individual drugs in the regimen, proved not to be very beneficial. And so there's still work to be done. Data that was presented uh, at the retrovirus conference this year suggests that another triple nucleoside regimen taking advantage of different mutational pathways of this drug AZT with tenofovir might have relatively good results. And this was data that was actually from an African cohort. So really based on this information, uh, there's a study within the ACTG that our center is heavily involved in that's going to be looking at an all-nucleoside combination with four nucleoside drugs compared to efavirenz really trying to find out if that can improve our therapy. One of the studies that was presented at the World AIDS uh, Conference is ACTG 5142. This is a study, again, that our center here really took a national uh, lead in. And we were very happy to be able to present these results. This study looked at uh, three commonly used, or actually two commonly used regimens that I pointed out earlier, a lopinavir-based regimen and an efavirenz-based regimen, each given with standard nucleosides. In addition, we pushed the envelope a little bit and tried to compare a regimen that didn't use nucleosides at all. The idea being that, in some people at least, the nucleosides can cause chronic long-term toxicity. So these three regimens were compared in a large study, randomized so that we know people would be balanced in the three arms. At entry to the study, and it was done for a long time, it was done for two full years to really look at longer-term consequences of this therapy. At entry, the patients had CD4 counts that were relatively low, about 180 cells, and viral load that was 100,000 copies or more. The primary results of the study are shown here and were a bit of a surprise. What we found, in fact, is that the efavirenz regimen shown in the yellow line here did the best. And the way you look at these graphs again is looking at the proportion of people that don't have. Uh, failure of the regimen defined by the virus coming back or rebounding. You can see that the efavirenz regimen did quite well. Surprisingly, also the nucleoside sparing arm did well as well. So this now means that this is a potential option for people who can't take nucleosides. And surprisingly, the boosted PI, which we always thought was the most potent regimen, at least in this particular analysis, didn't do quite as well. And so this information then can be uh, entered into our brains to try to figure out for individuals what might be the best therapy. Another strategy that was trialed is an induction maintenance strategy. So most of our regimens now have at least three drugs in them because we think you need that many drugs to suppress the virus and keep it suppressed. This study, again, sort of pushed the envelope saying, well, Maybe after you suppress the virus, you could cut back a bit, use fewer drugs, have less cost, perhaps less toxicity, uh, and maybe that strategy would work. So a sort of induction and then followed by a maintenance with fewer drugs. So well, that's exactly what they did in this particular study here. And without giving all the details, essentially what we're looking at is a standard regimen of efavirenz plus nucleoside versus lopinavir plus nucleosides. And then the nucleosides were dropped from the uh, lopinavir arm. Sorry, I think these are both lopinavir-based. Can see essentially that both of these therapies are doing reasonably well uh, with time with no appreciable differences between them. So although I think these studies that have looked at monotherapy with lopinavir as maintenance are interesting and need to be continued, we're not quite done in enough people that we're convinced that it's really safe in general for people to do. But this at least suggests that there may be alternative strategies uh, in uh, treatment There are some potential risks of giving a therapy that uh, just has uh, one drug in it, such as boosted lopinavir, or in this case, boosted atazanavir. And Scott Latender will discuss this in a little more detail when he discusses about the central nervous system. But essentially, what you're seeing is some of the patients um, have concentrations of atazanavir, which are being shown here, that are really pretty low. And so that uh, we have to be careful if we use a targeted maintenance therapy that uh, we're treating all the virus in all the different compartments of the body. Finally, I'll end by saying there are newer therapies that are coming along, and Dr. Benson will uh, speak more to this point, uh, looking at newer drugs that might be quite promising. In this case, a a study looking at a new integrase inhibitor. This is a drug in a new class that uh, we don't have currently any drugs in this class. Uh, This class uh, looks very promising in treatment-experienced patients who may be resistant to some of the drugs that we have now. But now looking at this in treatment-naive patients, So looking at different doses of the medication uh, shown here, compared to a standard efavirenz-based regimen shown here. It actually looks like the new drug, the integrase inhibitor, is getting to undetectable viral loads faster than efavirenz. So you might ask the questions, why isn't efavirenz working very well in this case? Well, in fact, it turns out that efavirenz is doing pretty good. What's happening is the integrase inhibitors are actually beating it in terms of getting to undetectable viral levels. And in fact, this uh, response here for efavirenz is very similar, it's been seen in many other studies, including the 5142 that I showed you earlier. So it suggests that there may be newer classes of drugs that may be even more potent than the drugs we have now. And how to best use those drugs and uh, where to use them are questions that we have for the future. Interestingly, also, um, this new integrase uh, drug appears to be very good in terms of side effects on cholesterol. So, for example, showing here the increase in cholesterol that you see with the Favrins, with about a 10 to 20 uh, milligram per deciliter increase, that's what we are. Accustomed to seeing with the Favrins based regimens, really don't see with the integrase inhibitor uh, shown here. So, again, potentially in the future we may have drugs that have less lipid side effects. Ooh, and this actually is my demonstration of my power in using PowerPoint and making things grow. <laughs> So, why in 2006, when we have the holy grail of therapy, which is one drug, one pill, sorry, one pill once a day that has three drugs in it, why should we even bother with any other therapies? And I've shown you just a hint of some of the data that suggests there may be reasons why we want to explore other therapies. There may even be other therapies in the future that have some advantage over this standard one drug once a day. And so, um, in the future, studies that we'll be looking at. uh, We'll explore things like an all-nucleoside regimen that might be useful in certain patient populations, integrase inhibitors that look very promising, and other inhibitors, new drugs that are on the way as well. But I should emphasize and the one slide I did show of a triple nuke regimen that didn't work so well is before we actually start treating people uh, in the clinic with these therapies, we need to make sure they work well and they work as well as good therapies we have now. And so only careful studies that help define the role of these agents compared to standard regimens we know work well will answer those questions. And I didn't go over my time.
0: Thank you, Richard. So um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Constance Benson. Uh, Connie uh, joined us uh, just under two years ago so that we had a strong program that's gotten even stronger. She is, um, as I mentioned, the director of our AIDS clinical trials unit and the director of the international program overall. Um, And she has extensive experience both in the treatment of HIV and its complications and uh, she's going to discuss this evening uh, new drugs in the management of treatment experience patients
2: thank you
3: it's a pleasure to be here this evening Um, i'm going to intersperse some of my comments with some definitions knowing that we have and we're very pleased with this, uh, quite a mixture of people in our audience that range all the way from physicians who treat individuals with HIV infection to individuals who are struggling with HIV themselves. So I'm going to start by telling you what I mean by treatment experience patients, and For the purposes of our discussion today, treatment experience means people who have been on treatment regimens with antiviral drugs aimed at suppressing HIV in the bloodstream for a variety of uh, different regimens over a long period of time. And most of the drugs and studies I'm going to present to you today have been done in people who've been treated for a fairly long period of time with almost all of the existing drugs that we currently have available to us to treat HIV infection. Well, you heard a little bit about this from Dr. Halbrick earlier, and that is the question about why we need new drugs. And while that may be a somewhat of a controversial question when you're talking about people who have never been on antiviral therapy before, I think the field of treatment experience patients is really the field where the need for new antiviral drugs aimed at HIV is the most critical. First-line therapies are convenient and well-tolerated, but as you heard, not for everyone, and they don't always work on everyone who gets them. The limitations of our current drugs include not just toxicities or side effects, which many people experience when they're starting on new regimens, but also issues related to drug resistance. And there are two types of drug resistance that occur in patients with HIV, those that happen while you're on therapy, and usually that occurs when the virus continues to reproduce itself in the presence of antiviral drugs, and there's transmitted drug resistance that occurs when a person with HIV infection who has drug-resistant virus transmits that virus to another individual, and it may be difficult to treat the virus in both of those individuals. So resistance and cross-resistance to multiple classes of drugs that we use to treat HIV are continual problems in the field of HIV management and one of the principal reasons for why we need new drugs. The second concept I'd like to get across is that our... Guidelines and recommendations for how we treat HIV are undergoing constant evolution. In the past, we used to approach treatment experienced patients, particularly those who had drug-resistant virus, as a group of individuals that while they were difficult to treat, we could maintain on some regimens a level of virus suppression, that while it may not be complete suppression to levels of undetectable virus in the bloodstream, we could at least maintain suppression to the point where the CD4 cell count, which is our indirect measure of your immune function, can be stabilized so that people don't get some of the complications that are associated with full-blown AIDS and the increased risk of mortality. As we've developed new and more potent drugs, Our treatment guidelines and recommendations, or the paradigm that we use to guide us in how to treat HIV, has shifted substantially. As you'll see from the next few slides, we're now able, with some of the newer, more potent drugs, to fully suppress virus replication in the bloodstream in a very substantial proportion of patients who have had prior treatment experience. And so new guidelines, just recently published, have suggested that even in the treatment experienced patient population, we should be attempting to use preferably three, but at least two, fully active antiviral drugs in the regimen. And fully active is based on defining activity with drug resistance testing and a good treatment history to understand what patients have previously been exposed to. If that's not possible, then strong consideration should be given to maintaining patients on their current regimen if their CD4 cell counts are stable until such time as new drugs become available in a way that they can put together two very active drugs in a successive treatment regimen. And our goal of therapy at this juncture is also to fully suppress virus to undetectable levels, even in patients with treatment experience. This next slide, although it's a complicated data slide that we sometimes use to present results from clinical trials, is a, is a slide that is helpful to illustrate the point that I was just making. And this is a study that looked at a new drug called Darunavir or pres- uh, Presista. And this drug is, has been recently approved for treatment of HIV in treatment experience patients. Darunavir, and here on this slide abbreviated as TMC114R, was compared in two clinical trials, the results of which are put together in a single slide here, with a standard of care background. And all of the study designs I'm going to talk about subsequent to this have used a similar design in which people who have, are heavily treatment experienced are assigned by chance to an optimized background regimen in which drug resistance testing is used to select existing drugs to put together in an optimized way as the baseline therapy, and they either receive optimized background therapy or OBT alone, or optimized background therapy plus the new agent. And in this case, TMC114R or darunavir was the new agent. The bars in green represent darunavir. the bars in black represent the background optimized background therapy. The only real point I'd like to take away from this slide is over here on the far side, and this illustrates in a very graphic way the point I just made, and that is that with darunavir, the new drug, combined with at least one other drug to which the virus is sensitive, more than half, almost 60% of patients were able to completely suppress virus to levels of undetectable viral load after a year of therapy and this is in contrast to darunavir plus optimized background therapy, in which there were no other sensitive drugs that the darunavir could be combined with. And in that setting, only about 15% of patients were able to fully suppress virus to undetectable levels after a year of therapy. So this shows you graphically that achieving full suppression of virus replication is possible with new agents if there are other active agents to compare it to combine it with. So I'm going to talk about some new classes of drugs this evening for which we're starting to see emerging data in treatment experience patients. This is a slide that we often use to illustrate what different targets there are in the life cycle of HIV that we can use to take advantage of to suppress that life cycle of the virus. The first phase of virus life cycle is when the virus particle here binds to a receptor or a molecule on the surface of the cd4 cell which is the target cell of hiv and as it binds to that cd4 cell it interacts with the cell in a way that allows the virus to fuse with the with the host cell and gain entrance of the nuclear material or genetic material of the virus into the host cell Here, reverse transcription occurs, which is a process in which the virus genetic material is reproduced and copied in a way that makes two copies of the virus genetic material, which then can migrate into the host cell nucleus. And here, there's another step in the process called integration, where the virus particle genetic material becomes integrated with the DNA or genetic material of the host cell. And this is the machinery that then allows new virus particles to be made by the host cell. There are several steps along this way that we can inhibit that process from happening. We have new classes of drugs that inhibit the binding of the virus to co-receptors. We have new drugs that inhibit the integration of the virus into the host DNA material. And then another phase of virus replication where new genetic material is made then migrates back out and then is packaged into a new virus particle where it then emerges from the cell we have two phases where we have antiviral classes of drugs that can inhibit that process from occurring. So we're approaching a point in time where we have targets and new drugs aimed at those targets that can attack the virus life cycle at virtually every stage of virus replication. So this is a busy slide that looks at the number of new drugs that are in preclinical or clinical development aimed at existing classes of drugs. The existing classes we already have available to us are the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors that you heard about earlier from Dr. Halbrick, the protease inhibitors, and fusion inhibitors. The non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors are called a separate class but are doing essentially the same thing as the nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. The only point to be made from this slide is that there are more than 22 different compounds currently in phases of testing that are new agents aimed at the three existing classes of antiviral drugs. I'm only going to talk about one of these today because only one of these new agents is close close enough in clinical development that it may be useful for people in clinical practice within the next one to two years. With regard to totally new classes of drugs, similar table illustrates the point that there are more than 20 compounds also in clinical testing that are aimed at the new targets that I pointed out to you. Entry inhibitors, integrase inhibitors, and maturation inhibitors, plus a variety of other compounds aimed at different targets in the life cycle of the virus as it replicates i'm only going to talk about four of these stu- compounds tonight because these are the four that are farthest along in clinical testing and may be available for use in clinical practice shortly so just to highlight the first class of existing drugs that i'm going to talk about the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors this is an agent referred to as etravirine or tmc125 and just as i pointed out earlier this is a study design this was developed in a study design similar to the one i alluded to in which two different doses of the new compound are compared with optimized background referred to here as active control with the active control being given alone as optimized background therapy or optimized background therapy given together with one of two different doses of tmc125 and similar to the slides the data slides you saw earlier this is a graph that depicts the amount of antiviral activity of this drug in combination with optimized background therapy over here the Amount of antiviral activity is measured in a logarithmic scale, looking at the change in the amount of virus present in the bloodstream. And just to summarize for you, a decline of a log and a half is somewhere between 90 and a 99% reduction in the amount of virus present circulating in the blood. And so what you can see with the two different doses of atraverine, 400 milligrams or 800 milligrams given twice a day, both compounds reduced the amount of virus in the blood by 90 to 95 percent compared to the optimized background or active control, which really had very little effect at all in patients with a drug-resistant virus. So this is a very promising agent of the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor class that's likely to be available in clinical practice within the next one to two years. The next class I'm going to highlight are the entry inhibitors. And remember, this is a class of compounds that inhibits virus attachment and interaction with the co-receptors on the surface of the T helper cell that are responsible for allowing the virus to gain entry into the host cell where it begins to replicate. The first of these two drugs I'm going to talk about is a drug called Maraviroc. This is a drug that targets a receptor on the surface called the CCR5 receptor. This is one of two major co-receptors that the virus uses to gain entry into the host cell. The other receptor is called a CXCR4 receptor. And on this slide, you'll see the term tropic here what dual tropic means is that the viruses circulating in the bloodstream in patients who enrolled in this trial had virus that could use either of those two receptors either the ccr5 or the cxcr4 receptor and similar to the other studies i've shown you this is a study in which the new drug the Maraviroc drug in one of two different doses was compared with optimized background therapy alone. And placebo was given to replace the Maraviroc, but every patient in the study got optimized background therapy. So everyone's treated. There really was no true placebo arm. But the results here, not to belabor the point, show you that a minus... 0.9 Point 0.9 to minus 1.2 log reduction means that Maraviroc reduced the amount of virus in the bloodstream by 90 to 99 percent in patients who participated in this study. And in comparison to optimized background, The one point to take away from this slide is that optimized background therapy also had a fairly dramatic effect in this particular study and there may be two reasons for that. The first is this concept of dual tropic virus. The CCR5 inhibitors like Maraviroc, attack only viruses that use the CCR5 receptor. They have no activity against virus that uses the CXCR4 receptor. So if patients have both types of virus circulating in the bloodstream, the drug is inhibiting only that virus that uses the CCR5 receptor. So that may be one reason why Maraviroc didn't look much better than the optimized background therapy here. The second reason is that in contrast to the other studies that I've shown you this evening, patients in this study, while they had experience with all three existing classes of drugs, they had virus that was resistant to only two of those classes of drugs. So they were able to put together in their optimized background therapy uh, regimen that was more active against the virus than what you've seen with the other studies. And so I think what this tells us is, first of all, maraviroc has activity against dual tropic virus, but it also, in combination with one or more active agents, has activity only against the CCR5 Using virus. And if you can use this agent in patients that aren't fully resistant to everything, you may still have pretty substantial activity with the drug. The second CCR5 inhibitor class of drugs that has undergone clinical testing is another drug referred to as Vicraviroc. This is a study that we've been doing here at the AVRC, ACTG-5211, and in this slide, what I'm showing you are the results of three different doses of Vicraviroc plus optimized background therapy compared to optimized background therapy alone. And I'll only point you to the results in the middle part of the slide here, showing you that all three doses of the Vicraviroc used in this clinical trial reduced the amount of virus by about 90 to 95 percent in circulating blood, compared to only a very modest effect with optimized background therapy alone and there were substantial increases in the T helper cell count among patients treated with this drug compared to an overall reduction in patients who got only optimized background therapy. The last class of of new agents I'm going to talk about is one you just heard about a merck compound and a gilead compound referred to as integrase inhibitors and in contrast to the study that dr howbrick showed you this is a study in heavily treatment experienced patients again using the very same study design in which the new drug was put together with optimized background therapy and compared to optimized background therapy alone without the new drug in patients who had heavily drug-resistant virus. And what you can see here is that after 24 weeks of treatment, about six months of treatment with all three doses of the Merck integrase inhibitor, heavily treatment experienced patients with highly drug-resistant virus, about 60% of them had undetectable viral loads. And this was achievable in comparison to a very modest to no effect of optimized background therapy alone. And also illustrated in this study, very similar to the very first slide I showed you with Darunavir, is that if patients had the use of an additional active drug to combine with the Merck integrase inhibitor, in this case T20, and I only highlight this portion of the slide, between 90 and 100 percent of patients were able to fully suppress virus to undetectable levels at the end of 24 weeks. Again, illustrating that point that if you have at least one other drug to, comp- to combine with a new class of drugs, you can achieve very substantial antiviral activity. And the last slide here is illustrating the similar findings with the Gilead integrase inhibitor. In this case, this is only a 10 day study in which patients got the Gilead integrase inhibitor for 10 days in combination with optimized background therapy. And this particular integrase inhibitor actually has a pharmacokinetic profile, meaning how the drug is metabolized in the bloodstream by individuals that requires or allows it to be combined with ritonavir to get much higher concentrations in the bloodstream than we could achieve with just the parent drug alone. And when you combine the drug with ritonavir, you can see that after 10 days of dosing, At the highest dose level combined with ritonavir, we get almost 99%. A two-log drop in virus refers to 99% decline in the amount of virus in the bloodstream in patients after only 10 days of dosing. So this, too, is a very promising compound. So I'll end here just by reiterating the goals in the management of the treatment experienced patient have begun to shift. We're now at a stage where we can expect to achieve full suppression of viral replication in the bloodstream in a very substantial proportion of patients if we're able to use new classes and new drugs together with another fully active drug to make two active drugs in the regimen. We can do this through optimizing the activity of the drugs by targeting them based on genotypic and phenotypic drug resistance testing, taking a good treatment history, knowing what patients have received prior to coming into studies, And if not possible, it may be worthwhile at this juncture knowing that we have more than 50 new drugs in current stages of clinical testing to hold the course until we can put together a regimen that has at least two active drugs so that patients can achieve the maximal amount of viral activity as possible in those people who are able to hold the line with their current regimens. And I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Thank you, that was excellent. The, um, the next speaker is Dr. Scott Latender. So Scott is the specialist in neurovirology at our antiviral research center. He's led uh, uh, numerous studies uh, of new drugs and he is especially interested in um the treatment of HIV in the central nervous system uh... and the impact of HIV in the central nervous system and um, he's really one of the um, the world's most expert people in this area. So without further ado, Scott.
2: Well thank you everyone again for attending I appreciate it as do we all and uh... As opposed to what some of the other investigators have shown, I want to just uh, take a little bit of a different tact and talk a little bit about the brain. Uh, I like to just start out with acknowledgments because we couldn't do any of this work without our volunteers and to the very generous support we get from the NIH. In particular, I also want to recognize my colleagues at the HNRc, and this is a fairly long list, but does not include a very important person, Tom Marcotte. and I'm. Not saying that just because he's sitting in the audience, uh, but Tom is very instrumental to uh, the work we do at the Center. So um, I like this slide because it, it just graphically shows uh, the three major contributors to uh, what's been called various things, including HIV, dementia. And uh, we all know that if, when someone gets dementia, they have problems with thinking and memory. So we, the cog- cognitive part is easy to remember. It's the other parts that people sometimes forget. So not only do people who have dementia develop problems with their thinking and memory, but they develop problems with their motor skills. And those can sometimes present first. It can be the, sort of the first warning signs. They can start to develop some unsteadiness in their gait. They can develop a little bit of a tremor or difficulties with coordination. People with dementia also develop problems with their, uh, with their mood and their behaviors. They may seem apathetic, they may be misdiagnosed sometimes as depression, or they can even seem manic. So i just like everyone to remember that it's not just people's thinking and memory and concentration that can be affected, but these other areas as well. Now, it's also important to remember that people who get dementia, even mild forms of it, have problems with other areas of their lives. So they have problems adhering to their medications and remembering their medical appointments. They have problems managing their finances and preparing their meals. Uh, Dr. Marcotte uh, does a lot of very nice work looking at driving. People who have thinking and memory problems have problems with their driving. And, of course, they have problems with their uh, work and remaining employed. And most importantly, people who have thinking and memory problems die sooner than people who don't. Now this is just a clinical way that we stage the disease, and I just I'm showing it not to go through it step by step, but just to remind people um, that at the end stages, dementia can can become very severe. Uh, People become nearly vegetative. They can become uh, paraparetic. They're bed-bound. They can't walk. And they can become incontinent. So this is a very frightening syndrome. And I show it not to frighten you, but just to give you an idea of what, why we study this. Not, not only because the mild forms are dangerous, but because it can progress to very severe forms. Now, not everyone gets dementia. So the question is, what determines? who gets dementia and who doesn't and as you can see just from these long list there's a number of factors that have been identified over the years having more advanced hiv disease having had aids even if you've recovered to some degree your cd4 counts that's still an important risk factor people who have anemia seem to be at increased risk our therapies as you've seen are have and as you know have become much more effective and as a result people are living longer but as they live longer we're now seeing that older age is also a risk factor for developing dementia. Um, women seem to be at somewhat less risk although the jury's out a little bit. Some studies have not confirmed that but there may be somewhat reduced risk for uh, developing dementia among women. There's also uh, some evidence to suggest that people who develop insulin resistance and metabolic problems related to HIV disease and its treatment can also develop thinking and memory problems. Uh, we do a lot of work here because Because crystal methamphetamine is such a huge problem in Southern California. We do a lot of work looking at the effects of meth on the brain, and meth seems to be an independent determinant of people who get of risk for, for dementia. There also seems to be human genetics risk factors. People seem to have some people who have particular genetics seems to be at higher risk for developing dementia. And I've just listed a couple here. One is a, uh, a body protein called a chemokine that uh, can be expressed by various cells and attracts inflammatory cells to sites of injury. So if you express a lot of this in your brain, you attract a lot of HIV-producing cells into the brain. And so people who have a particular genetic form of, this, of the gene encoding this protein are at almost a five-fold increased risk for developing dementia. There's also uh, proteins that pump drugs out of, including antiretrovirals, out of the brain, and so people who have particular forms of the genes that encode these molecular pumps can also be at risk for developing dementia because they're not getting as high levels of the antiretrovirals into their brain. So those are sort of host factors that can determine who's at risk. The virus can also play a role too, and. We and others uh, in uh, Dr. Smith and Dr. Richmond's lab um, have looked at how the virus can adapt to the brain. And so this can happen in a proportion of people. The virus can uh, um, adapt to the cells in the brain, which are different, different from the cells that it infects in the uh, blood and in the lymph nodes. And if it becomes well adapted, uh, you could imagine it can really start to replicate to higher levels and cause much more injury. There's also some co-pathogens, as we know people with HIV are at risk for being infected with other organisms and uh, we've been studying uh, the effects of hepatitis C um, uh, very uh, assiduously uh, in the last few years and in fact it looks like hepatitis C can actually infect cells in the brains too. It's a liver virus but it actually seems the virus can infect cells in the brain also so the good news after telling you all that bad news how about a little good news the good news is uh, that the uh, severe forms of dementia really seem to have declined as a result of more effective therapies so this is uh, these are a couple of nice graphs looking at various neurologic complications of hiv as well as dementia over time in a large cohort study called the multi-center aids cohort study and what you can see is that the levels of these neurologic complications of HIV, as well as dementia, declined dramatically after uh, combi- effective combination therapy was introduced in 1996. So you see this great reduction here, and then there's still some, vari- some variability here, but in general, the incidence, the number of new cases has really declined. The, again, the, the bad news, is that even though the number of new cases had declined the good news is that people are living longer but the bad news about that is that more and more people are living with cognitive impairment so even if only 1 or 2 or 3 or 4% of people develop dementia per year because we're more successful at at treating people and helping them live longer, uh, those cases are accumulating. So now what we're seeing, what you see in this graph, is that the prevalence, the number of existing cases, not the number of new cases, but the number of existing cases, increased from 1994 to 2002 in the HIV clinic in at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Now, this only went up to 2002. Um, uh, Dr. Richmond mentioned the Charter Study. This is a large study that we coordinate and participate in um, with five other centers around the country: in New York, and Baltimore, St. Louis, and Texas, and in Seattle. And these are just the results from the first two years of the study. And in this study of about 1,200 people at this at this point, we're finding that over half of them are impaired have uh, impaired neuropsychological performance uh, in over half of people. Over half of people have impaired neuropsychological performance. And again, you see, we're not seeing these very severe forms that we used to see. They're mostly mild and mild to moderate, but even these forms can result in people having problems with their lives and taking their medications and earlier death. So that's why we continue to be concerned about it. Now. Um, This is a little bit of a complicated slide but I just want to use it to let you know that the blood vessels that go to the brain are very specialized and as you could imagine they're specialized to prevent Uh, dangerous uh, pathogens organisms and chemicals from passing into the brain we only want things to get in the brain that are are beneficial so i'm not going to go through all the specialized structures but there's several levels of protection here and the good news is that the blood-brain barrier this barrier can exclude a lot of dangerous uh, uh, proteins and, and chemicals from the brain, but the bad news is that it can also exclude our treatments from the brain. And here's just sort of a graphic example. So this is clearly not a human, but it's an, an animal, and a rodent. And This is a study that was done uh, in, in which uh, one of the antiretrovirals, sequinavir, was uh, injected into a mouse, and. The investigator looked to see where the drug was going in the mouse, and the the more bright signal you see here, the higher the concentration of the drug. And this is the giving, uh, this is the other name for sequinavir, this is giving sequinavir uh, without boosting, and you can see it it concentrates mostly in the area of uh, where it was injected into the abdomen, but it's not going at all, into the brain or the CSF, which has important implications for uh, prevention of dementia and treatment of dementia. It's also not going into the genital tract, which has important implications for transmission of HIV disease. Even when this uh, investigator boosted the drug with ritonavir, you can see there is this much greater distribution of this bright signal throughout the body, including some in the genital tract now, but still almost complete exclusion of it from the brain and the spinal fluid. So again, this is sort of a nice visual example of, of what sort of problems we're facing. Now, what we can do, among other things, is measure the amount of drugs um, in uh, of antiretrovirals in spinal fluid. So this is atazanavir, which is also known as reyataz, and uh, these are samples from our charter study, and these are the concentrations of reyataz in CSF in the blue here, and in blood in the um, in red. Now, CSF, just for, so for those of you who don't know, is spinal fluid, and we obtain it by doing a lumbar puncture, And these these are uh, lumbar puncture uh, specimens from 80 people. And just so you know, just down the street at the HNRC, the HIV Neurobehavioral Research Center, last year, we performed almost 800 lumbar punctures in people for research purposes to understand these issues better and we usually get a little bit of a gasp at that point you know that uh, how could you do so many lumbar punctures, spinal taps but i want to make the point that you should also follow with a gasp of appreciation for all these people who are willing to have this procedure done to help us understand what's going on in the brain better and also a gasp of understanding that if 800 spinal taps were done last year perhaps it can't be as bad as many of us fear it is. So, now... Yeah. So, um, so in this study, what I want to point out, Dr. Halbrick showed a version of this slide. What I want to point out is that we expected, based on information I can tell you later, but I won't, I won't go into in the interest of time, we expected the concentrations of this antiretroviral, this protease inhibitor, in spinal fluid to be about 14% of those in blood. What we found instead was that they were 1%. So you see here the blood levels were between 1,000 and 10,000, roughly, nanograms per mil units, and that those in spinal fluid were about 10%. So they were much slower than we expected and of concern there was a number of people who had undetectable levels, even though they were taking therapeutic doses of the medication. So this suggests that some of the drugs, so this shows that at least this drug, but I'll tell you that also some of the other drugs don't seem to get into the central nervous system, the spinal fluid and the brain, we think, in concentrations high enough to inhibit the the virus there. Now, we can't go measuring drug levels in everyone in the clinic so what we've tried to do is come up with something that could be used in the clinic, some measure, some estimate of penetration. And again, we went through a lot of data to derive this uh, categorization. I'd be happy to send this to anyone who's interested or share it with your medical provider. Um, but basically, we, based on a lot of data, we categorized drugs as, as better penetrators, worse penetrators, or intermediate penetrators. And we just scored these as 0.5 or 1. And for someone who was on a regimen, we just added up the scores. So if you're on a three-drug regimen, you got uh, the addition of three scores, depending on what category they were in. So we used these composite scores we call the CNS penetration effectiveness score, and we compared that to viral loads in spinal fluid, and we found that people who were on better penetrating regimens, more than, greater than or equal to 2 here, penetration score, uh, about tw- they had, their CSF viral loads were detectable in about 12% of cases. Compare that to people who had this intermediate category, about one5 18%, and people who had the worst penetrating regimens, about 22%. So uh, this supported that better penetration, our, our, our estimates of penetration, resulted in lower, vir- lower amounts of virus in the spinal fluid and central nervous system. Now, recently we've also uh, just been able to measure viral levels down to an even lower uh, level. We usually measure them to 50 copies per mil. We have an assay that one of our collaborators has been working on to measure it down to about two and a half copies per mil. And even in this analysis, where everyone had below 50 copies, they were undetectable in blood and spinal fluid, almost half of them still had measurable levels of virus in their in their spinal fluid and when we looked at the penetration scores the people who had um, detectable levels here had lower penetration scores than people who didn't so we think not only does having better a better penetrating regimen help you get below 50 copies it helps you get as close to zero as we can measure right now so what about other drugs besides antiretrovirals if someone does get dementia do we have other drugs um, uh, to treat them? And this is sort of another bad news slide, because the answer is no. This just shows a lot of the studies that have been done to date, dating back almost 10 years, and none of them, uh, I'm sorry for the abbreviations here, but essentially there was not a, a really a positive effect for any of these drugs. Now, I just want to use that to introduce um, uh, the idea that a lot of our patients uh, in the clinic Take drugs other than antiretrovirals, including antidepressants and antibiotics. And we're finding that a lot of these, a lot of drugs that we use every day, don't have just one effect. They have more than one effect. And so some of these may actually have some beneficial effects for the brain. And so we've been doing some analyses to look at that. So in one analysis, uh, we looked at uh, whether people took SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a type of antidepressant, as well as statins, an anti-lipid drug for people who have too much cholesterol. And we just looked in our charter study. Um, this is almost, uh, almost 700 people, 659 people. And we looked at what their viral loads were in CSF, because there, were some, there was some information developed in the lab that seemed to show that these statins and SSRIs may actually reduce virus levels, HIV levels, in the central nervous system. So you, this particular slide just shows that people who were on neither of these classes of drugs, people who were on certain SSRIs, but not all, People who are on statins for their cholesterol, or people who are on both, and this is the proportion of detectable viral loads in CSF, and you see this nice stepwise reduction. People who are on neither, 39% of them had detectable virus in their in their CSF, their spinal fluid. People who are on SSRIs, 27%. People who are on statins but no SSRIs, 17%. And people who took both were 12%. Now. I want to make the point that you should not go out and ask your, your provider to put you on SSRIs and statins uh, to help you know, control the virus in your brain. These are far from definitive. We're still trying to understand these better, but I think these are very provocative results and, and potentially very promising. So this is the um, uh, next to the last slide, is just to make the point uh, a point that everyone knows which is that even though we have uh, um, way too much HIV disease in the United States, we're relatively well off compared to uh, other parts of the world. And um, with uh, funding that's been made available, we've been very uh, uh, um, uh, privileged to be able to pursue doing the same sort of work in China and in India and in Brazil, and uh, what we're finding is that the rates of dementia, the prevalence of dementia in those countries, and this doesn't doesn't show those data, but what we're seeing are, are um, uh, prevalences of dementia that are similar in these countries to the period before we had combination therapy. So dementia, while uh, we're seeing mostly mild and mild to moderate forms in the US and Europe, we're still seeing more moderate and severe forms at a higher rate in other countries, and we're hoping that advances in treatment will also there will also help uh, improve the situation. So finally, just in summary, I just want to leave you with a few points. The incidence of dementia has declined substantially since the introduction of combination therapy. But because people are living longer, we're seeing more and more of it, although mostly in mild and mild and moderate forms. Um, early data indicate that the prevalence in international settings is similar to the pre-Heart era in the US. Dementia is associated with functional problems, including reduced adherence to medications because people can't remember to take their medicines, and survival. And there's no definitive treatment yet, uh, but you can, we can try to focus on optimizing antiretroviral penetration into the central nervous system, and there's some hope that other med- medications may provide some benefits. So thank you again for attending.
0: Thank you, Scott. That was really excellent. Our final presentation this evening is uh, Dr. Susan Little. Uh, Dr. Little um, set up a program uh, to identify newly infected patients here in San Diego about 10 years ago. And in that um, interval uh, has really uh, generated the largest uh, cohort of uh, patients with newly identified HIV infection in the world. And uh, this cohort has led to uh, uh, several, I think, very important studies um, characterizing the transmission of drug resistance, the development of the immune response, compartmentalization of virus. And um, re- related to those studies, uh, she's going to speak to us this evening about HIV transmission, uh, where is prevention needed most. Susan? Thank
1: you.
4: Thank you very much. Um, So uh, tonight, I'm going to try and talk, as uh, Dr. Richman just said, about uh, HIV prevention. Uh, In terms of transmission, there are many uh, biological factors that affect uh, sexual transmission of uh, HIV, and in the interest of time I'm really only going to focus on a few of them. Um, The stage of HIV infection, uh, circumcision, methamphetamine use, and a little bit of sexually transmitted diseases, uh, beginning first with the stage of HIV infection. Um, This is a a Rakai study, uh, which is an area of Uganda that I'm going to talk about. Um, The Rakai study began almost decade ago, um, which was uh, uh, a study looking at discordant couples, which is uh, um, a heterosexual study looking at mass antibiotic use uh, aimed at reducing the transmission of, um, reducing sexually transmitted diseases between these discordant couples uh, in this area of Uganda where HIV was highly prevalent with the hopes that this would, in accord, reduce the transmission of HIV between these discordant couples. Over the last decade, um, many subsequent studies um, have followed um, this uh, uh, primary study, um, including this one, which was recently published, which looks at the duration of infection um, of the source uh, individual, the person who is infected, and the relative risk of that individual transmitting uh, to a recipient individual. Um, And shown here um, is um, the... Um, risk of uh, the source partner transmitting if that individual is themselves newly infected. That is if the um, uh, relative to the uh, number of um, sexual intercourse uh, contacts, uh, per thousand sexual intercourse contacts. So if the source partner themselves has just become infected, that is at the beginning of the study they were HIV negative, They themselves then become HIV-infected. That's described as primary HIV infection. Then they transmit to their partner pair, the recipient individual. The risk of HIV transmission in this group was uh, 12 times higher than in the next group, where the source individual was HIV positive at the time the study began, and they then transmitted to their partner pair in the course of follow-up of the study. Um, in this final group, the source partner um, died during follow-up, so almost by definition, that individual had much more advanced HIV infection, um, and the rate of uh, transmission was a bit higher in this group. But the main point is um, 44% of the primary individuals, the acutely infected individuals, transmitted HIV within the first five months of acquiring HIV infection themselves in this acutely infected uh, group. Um, So schematically, uh, the sexual transmission of HIV as reflected by the viral load, both in the plasma, shown here in yellow, and in the uh, genital tract, shown here in red, looks schematically a bit like this. That is, the risk of transmission is much higher in the acute infection period, which is probably the first three, four weeks, um, and then tapers off and is much lower during the rest of the infected individual's um, life. This is in the absence of therapy, um, and then increases uh, somewhat a bit uh, towards the end of the infected individual's life. Um, And although um, HIV has been a reportable disease in the state of California since 2002, knowledge about the number of new infections occurring in the state of California is still not a readily obtainable number. Um, But these investigators at the public health department in San Francisco, even before um, 2002, were trying to get uh, a handle on the number of new HIV infections that were occurring in the uh, San Francisco area in a high-risk population, that is, a a population of individuals um, who were getting tested at sexually transmitted disease clinics or STD clinics, um, over a 10-year period. And over that 10-year period, they came up with an estimate of um, uh, the incidence, that is the number of new cases occurring per year of 1.6% in this relatively high-risk population, and then some um, epidemiologic factors that we uh, were described in that population um, uh, that were associated. So the risk was 1.9% per year among men, per year among persons aged 35 to 44 years, 2.5% per year among whites, 6% per year among persons with gonorrhea, a sexually transmitted disease, 6.6% among men who have sex with men, and 8.2% per year among men who have sex with men and used injection drugs. So, um, again, these are associated risks, but again, the risk per year of acquiring HIV infection is very high among certain risk groups. Um, Many studies have shown an associated risk of uh, sexually transmitted disease increasing the risk of both transmitting HIV if you're co-infected and increasing the risk of acquiring HIV if one is just infected with a sexually transmitted infection. And for purposes of review, this study um, is a partial figure out of this uh, very nice review, which reviews 30, this paper reviews 30 individual publications um, which uh, summarize the risk of acquiring HIV infection in the presence of multiple different sexually transmitted infections, which are really just designed to show you the relative risk of acquiring HIV infection in the presence of various sexually transmitted infections. And the the individual publications are listed here on the left, and it's really not important unless you want to look up the reference what the individual publications are. But what's shown down here is the relative effect, and what you want to see here is that um, um, the relative risk of acquiring HIV is the effect, the risk, Um, And any time that it's greater than one, it's increased in the presence of that sexually transmitted disease. And this is sort of global, multiple, all STDs um, clustered together. But in the presence of genital ulcer disease, herpes, syphilis, or a conglomerate of multiple STDs clustered together, all of them show that the global risk of acquiring HIV out here Um, is greater than one, and that's what this vertical line is for each of them. It is all shifted to the right of one, which means that when you look at all of these put together, um, in general, the risk of acquiring HIV in the presence of any of the assorted sexually transmitted infections, in general, it falls between two to three. So the risk of acquiring HIV in the presence of a sexually transmitted infection is about two to three times higher. So put that together with what I already showed you. This is now acute HIV infection, and in the setting of chronic HIV infection, the intercurrent occurrence of a sexually transmitted infection now makes it look like this. That is to say, the risk of transmitting HIV infection um, may look like this. That is to say, viral load will go up, and the risk of transmitting HIV um, may go up like this. Um, Similarly, the risk of acquiring HIV infection may be increased in someone who has a sexually transmitted infection. But in terms of transmission, the risk is highest here, but may go up with these little blips at any time an individual has uh, an STD. So, moving on to methamphetamine. Um, It has now been well documented that methamphetamine is a risk in terms of uh, HIV transmission. Just in terms of background, 35 million methamphetamine users worldwide, 12.3 million American adults have used methamphetamine, 1.4 million used methamphetamine in 2004, 1.3 million used crack cocaine, nearly 400,000 heroin users. Uh, Methamphetamine, in terms of its HIV risk, will increase, studies have shown it will increase the number of sex partners, increase unprotected sex, increase the risk of STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, and increase the risk of HIV infection. Um, the uh, now looking, focusing on a single study. There are several studies that look at the attributable risk of methamphetamine and HIV infection. But focusing just on one single study, the Explore study looked at was a behavioral uh, 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 intervention study trying to look at the uh, risk of HIV acquisition. Uh, in uh, uh, an MSM, the men who have sex with men, uh, cohort uh, in six uh, cities across the United States, and specifically uh, f- um, focused on the um, uh, attributable risk of um, these various factors in this group, and found that the um, uh, attributable risk of methamphetamine use um, was uh, 2 Uh, unprotected receptive anal intercourse with someone who is HIV positive 3.4, receptive anal intercourse uh, with someone with unknown status was 2, 2.8 use of alcohol or drugs before sex 2.5 and uh, the presence of a sexually transmitted infection specifically gonorrhea here 2.5 and again this the um, um, attributable risk where they tried to calculate the percentage of the risk associated with each of these events um, is shown here on the right. Um, And um, again, the reason that um, uh, receptive anal intercourse with someone with unknown status is higher than someone uh, receptive anal intercourse um, with someone of known status is simply because more appropriate precautions are taken when you know the person's status as opposed to the unknown status. Um, But again, the point being that um, the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. This is an adjusted hazard ratio. Um, but the point being that the, um, the risk associated with methamphetamine use has been shown in several studies to be clearly associated with an increased risk of acquiring HIV infection. Um, and now, just in the interest of time, moving on to circumcision. Um, and the, the, the um, focus here is, why would circumcision be related to HIV infection? So in terms of biological plausibility, um, the inner mucosa of the foreskin is rich in HIV target cells. What that means is the foreskin actually has, the entire penis has cells that are infected by HIV, but specifically the foreskin is richest in concentration of cells that are infected by HIV. Um, the external foreskin and the shaft of the penis are keratinized. That means uh, uh, have a specific protein which make them less uh, vulnerable uh, to HIV infection. After circumcision, um, the, uh, the mucosa that's left behind is less susceptible to infection. Not impermeable, but much less susceptible. Um, and I'll show you a picture in a minute. The foreskin, which is retracted over the shaft during intercourse, Um, leaves the large inner mucosal surface exposed, that is the surface of the mucosa um, which is most susceptible to infection is exposed. Um, There are also Micro tears of the frenulum, which is this Y shaped web of skin that connects the foreskin to the under uh, surface of the head of the penis. And that has a very high concentration, again, of these target cells that are susceptible to HIV. That is removed, the frenulum, during circumcision. Um, An intact foreskin uh, is associated with infections, genital ulcer disease, herpes syphilis, chancroid, um, balanitis, which is an inflammation of the head of the penis, phimosis, which is an inflammation of the foreskin, and also possibly also associated with uh, an increase in HIV entry or shedding. My goal here was to simply show you um, this is uh, an uncircumcised penis with uh, the inner foreskin of the um, uh, foreskin, which in a, an erect, uncircumcised uh, state, the foreskin slides back, and these are where uh, HIV enters. Uh, the glands, or the head of the penis, is relatively more refractory to HIV binding, but it's this inner foreskin and the frenulum which is where uh, HIV is most likely to bind. Um, A couple of very interesting statistics. If you look at African countries and their relative HIV prevalence relative to the frequency of male circumcision, and again, this is in the absence of therapy, Countries where male circumcision is less than 20% are associated with higher uh, HIV prevalence rates in the sort of 15 to 25% compared to countries where where circumcision is practiced normally at greater than 80% where HIV prevalence rates are in the 10 to 5%. So um, possible circumcision protective mechanisms are associated with uh, anatomic removal of the foreskin and these micro tears in the frenulum, uh, reduced uh, STD co-infection rates, and I think principally, my, my bet is reduced target cells for HIV infection. Um, And then the last slide I've got here is the one now completed randomized controlled trial um, which did show in fact that when patients in Africa uh, in Johannesburg were randomized to either um, circumcision or no circumcision, um, and followed for a time period at uh, followed at months three, twelve, and twenty-one. Um, at month fourteen, there were a significantly higher number of HIV infections in the uncircumcised control group. Um, and this study did, in fact, have to be stopped prematurely um, because there were a much greater number um, shown here: twenty-five out of fourteen hundred compared to eleven out of fourteen hundred uh, HIV infections in the uncircumcised control group compared to the circumcised group. And for what it's all the patients in the control group were offered circumcision at the conclusion of the study, or in this case at the unblinding period. Um, so I just wanted to end there. Thank you.
0: Do HIV therapies work equally well across all age groups? Um, Are there issues regarding treatments in people who are uh, 50 years or older? Uh, And similarly, uh, in women who may have hormonal changes uh, uh, when they're older, does this impact uh, treatment decisions and therapies?
3: Okay, those are all very good questions. The first one, uh, this is a test of my own dementia, whether I can remember all three of the questions. The first one... (laughs) having to do with whether the drugs work the same across all age groups. I think the probably the most important points to take away from that question is that, based on our knowledge of drugs we are able to test in the youngest age groups, in pediatric and infants with HIV infection, We know that when we're able to deliver the drugs, they work very well in that age group. The problem is that many of the drugs that we have for use in adults, there are no formulations that exist that can be administered to infants or very young children. So there is a formulation problem with many of the drugs. They get tested and approved in adult and adolescent patients first, and then the development process that goes into making a liquid formulation of the drug, or one that you can give to a baby or a very young child, has to go through different stages of development. So many of the drugs that we talk about and have available for use in older adolescents and adults are just not available to young children or infants but when they do get them, they work well. In older age groups, there is a lot of interest in research related to individuals over the age of 50, and the biological reason for why there might be changes in how the drugs might work in that age group is that as we all age, and become older, our immune system declines in its ability to fight many types of infections. And there also are changes in the liver and kidney function with age that may affect how many of the drugs are metabolized. But just as I've said about young children and infants, if you can get the drugs in to sa- into older individuals in safe concentrations and adjust those concentrations to therapeutic levels, they appear to work just as well in older age groups. There may be some minor differences or adjustments based on the metabolism of the drugs, but overall the activity is the same. And just briefly, to finish the sex or gender question, in studies that have been done for in virtually across all of these different clinical trials related to new drug development, in general, women are underrepresented in those clinical trials, but when they are represented in numbers that are comparable proportionally to the numbers of men who participate in the trial. Studies that look at the activity of the drugs and how they behave in women appear to show that they are comparable in activity in women to men. Again, there may be minor differences related to how women metabolize the drugs, and hormonal environment is one of those differences, although we don't really understand how major shifts in hormones may uh, be applied across women in various stages of their lives, But in all of the studies that have looked at this, in general, the drugs are equally effective in women as men, with the only differences being in how women may metabolize those drugs, such that differences may need to be made in dosage adjustment or how you dose those drugs in women.
0: I'd like to stop here and really thank the audience for their attention and participation. And I would like to thank the speakers for their excellent presentations.